0: All right, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Paul writing to the church at Philippi says, not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Really on the one phrase that Paul emphasizes here, where he says, pressing on. He says, not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I make it my own to press on. So what does Paul mean when he says press on? Specifically, what, is, what does it mean to grow in your relationship with Jesus? What does it mean to grow in your relationship with with Jesus? because let's be honest let's be honest about this this is a relationship unlike any other you don't you don't have a horizontal category for this in your life a relationship with a god who is who's unchangeable he doesn't change for centuries a god who's omnipotent he he has the power to fashion a tree out of nothing to spin the entire galaxies into existence, all the power of the universe in the tip of his finger. A God who's omnipresent, he, he, you cannot pull a Jonah and go run away from him. He's everywhere. You cannot escape his presence. A God who's omniscient, who knows you better than you know yourself. A God who knows everything perfectly from the beginning to the end and who's planning a story for all of creation that will culminate in the most magnification of his glory as possible. Let me say this again. You don't have a category in your relational experience for relationship with that type of God. A God who is three in one you don't have a, a category for that type of relationship outside the gospel. So what does it mean to grow in your relationship with, with Jesus? Because, again, you, without, without the gospel, you don't have this category. You don't have this experience. And even with the gospel, this experience, this growing in this relationship with this kind of God is, is hard. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to, it's hard to fathom. So what does that mean? And it's it's not helpful to us that the that the world twists this idea of healthy relationship and growing in relationship. That's not helpful to us. Because in the <coughs> excuse me, because in the secular world, growing in a loving relationship is oftentimes contingent upon lesser things. Contingent upon things like feelings. Well, you ask this ask this question to somebody who's in a romantic relationship. Well, why do you love this person? Well, they just make me feel good. Do you hear that? The relationship, the health of the relationship is contingent upon how I feel. Well, what happens when that person doesn't make you feel good? What happens to the relationship then? What about performance? As long as you're doing well, the relationship is good. Those of you who are uh, who, who work in business, or you know, if, if you work at all and you have a boss, you, you understand the dynamic of this relationship. As long as I'm doing my job and I'm doing it well, my relationship with my boss is good. As long as I do well and I'm doing better, my relationship with my boss grows. He entrusts me or she entrusts me with m- more responsibilities. Maybe I get a raise. This is, this is how this relationship wor- works. The better I do, the better my performance, the better the relationship is. Counter to that, as my if my performance falls off, then I'm in trouble. I get called to the principal's office. can do this in, 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 in our in our social relationships as well. You know that that as long as someone is performing well for you, then you get along and you do well. But when they're not, the relationship dies off. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of a uh, of a relationship like that where 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 the person attaches themselves to you, sort of like a virus, and uh, and and feeds off of you as long as you give them something that they that they need. As long as you're performing well for them, but once you once you cease that, then the relationship dies. It cuts off. What about circumstances? Right. Talk again to this this person who's maybe in a romantic relationship and ask them, well, you know, how do you how is your relationship with this person? How, is it growing? Are you guys doing well? Oh yes, yes, we're doing everything's fine, everything's great. You know, I, l- I love this person because you know, things are just so well with us. We get along so well. Right? It, the, the underlying ground of that is as long as circumstances are well, the relationship is good. What happens when they're not? What happens when the relationship hits rocks, goes through the storm? We feel the strain in, in the culture because the culture has a has a skewed view of healthy relationships. And we feel the strain in our church too. If I came up to you and asked you this question, how is your relationship with God right now? How are you tempted to answer that question? My my guess is most of us would answer that question by focusing on our efforts. It would go like this. Well, well how's your relationship with God right now? How how are things between you and the Lord right now? Oh, it's, it's good. It's good. You know, I've i I've spent good time in the Word this week. Every day, um, you know, I'm uh, I'm 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 praying. I went to church on Sunday. Um, you know, things are things are good. Things are good. Do you, do you hear what's in that? that? That's focusing on on your efforts. Focusing on, on your efforts. Maybe maybe give you some another illustration to bring clarity. If if uh, if Jamie, if I if I uh, if you came up to me and said, Austin, how's your relationship with Leslie? I said, Oh, it's going great. It's going great. You know, I I took the trash out this morning. I made dinner last night. Um, you know, we we uh, I talked to her a little bit this morning and you know told her kind of what my plan for the day was. And um, you know, she's uh, she's supposed to be home tonight. And so um, yeah yeah it uh, it's going great. It's going great. How would you respond? No, that's right. You don't respond going, that doesn't tell me anything about your relationship with, with your wife. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm still battling a cold. That doesn't tell me anything about re- your relationship with, with your wife. It tells me about your duty, maybe, and some of the things you should be doing, but you see the blind side of that that is that relationship is a two-way street. There's nothing in there about her or or, or, or the health of the relationship, it's all about my efforts. <coughs> so often when we think of our relationship with the Lord, we assess how we're doing and, and whether we're pressing on, that's the category that we fit it into is, is our own performance. So the common view within church culture is that I'm secure in my relationship with God. My relationship with God is doing well as long as I'm doing these things as long as I'm achieving moral righteousness, as long as I'm performing religious duties, as long as I'm doing these things, my relationship with the Lord is good. You see, we, we and and, and that's, Paul, Paul goes against that, and we'll, we'll dive into that here in a second, but let me just kind of lay this out in theological terms. We get justification in Christ alone through faith alone. But those truths don't mean that our life is passive in regard to God. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's work to do. Remember Paul to the Ephesians? You were create, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared before him for you. It, would, it does not mean that your efforts that the work that you do that he, that he intends for you to do gain you entrance into heaven or a better, a, a more self-exalting seat at the table. They don't procure you those, any of those things for you. And yet they are, they are necessary. So, so again, just, just, I want you to feel the weight of, of that, the, the weight of that category of a relationship with a God who's unlike any, thing else relationally that you experience. And this is what you're drawn into. This is what the gospel draws you into is a relationship with that God. So how do we grow in our relationship with the Lord? How do we press on? Paul means to help us here to see how to grow, and he does so by showing his own pattern for growth. He reveals here, one, his motive, two, the means, the means by which he grows. So there's our outline for this morning. It's one, what's, the, what's our motive for growing? Why do we press on? Why do we press on and why, why, why in growing in our relationship with the Lord? And then secondly, what's our means? How do we do that? How do we press on? So we'll go with the motive, and then we'll talk about means, some, some practical aspects of, uh, uh, of things we can do. But before we even get to those, we've got to ask the question what are we pressing towards? Paul's imagery here is an imagery of a runner running a race. And every runner, if you've ever run in a race, I, I used to be a runner when I was in high school and I ran in college. I paid my dues. I, I, I can't remember tell you the last time that, that I ran a race, but the taste is still there in my mouth. And I remember when you run a race, you have to know where the finish line is. <laughs> every runner better know where the finish line is. Because if he if he doesn't, he's going to wander off. It'll be like Forrest Gump, and run all the way to this, you know, run all the way to the Pacific Coast. And well, I'm, I might as well turn around and run back. You've got to have a goal. You've got to have a. You've got to have an ending point that you're aiming at. Because every footstep that a runner takes, is, is uh, every footstep is balanced and it's placed in order to get you there to that goal, to that finish line. So as Christians, we better know where our finish line is. So where is our finish line? Just real quickly, because I don't, I don't want to go back over too, too much what Alan preached last week, but let's just, this is really kind of a recap. Verses 9, 10, and 11 give us, in this same chapter, give us justification, sanctification, glorification. Let's look at them briefly. Verse 9. if I can find it, hang on, <laughs> verse nine. So Paul says, I, uh, in verse eight, he says, uh, I, count, I count all of my works, count all of my religious works as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. It's my own paraphrase. Um, so I've suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So That's what Paul wants, he wants to gain Christ. What does that look like? What's the goal? Paul says in verse nine, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God that depends upon faith. There's justification. There's the beginning of the race being justified, declared righteous, not because of your own good deeds, because you realize your deeds are filthy rags, and you realize you need an alien righteousness. You need a righteousness outside yourself, one that only Christ can offer you. And it's offered in faith, or it's received in faith. So justification is the beginning of that race. It begins with a righteousness that is received through faith in Jesus Christ. So the starting pistol goes off, and you set out running a race of faith in Jesus. Verse 10 gives us a, further stepping in 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 our in our sanctification, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What does that look like as you're as you're running sanctification in a nutshell, that I may know him, to know Jesus more? We're gonna get more into that here in a second, because Paul dives into that in verse twelve. The power of his resurrection. That the resurrected Lord who declared victory over the grave, given the Holy Spirit and given new power in your life to have victory over sin, to be fashioned and formed like him. There's real real gospel power there. As as you're growing, trying to figure out what that is, what that looks like, trusting the Lord to do what you cannot do in yourself, In the lives of others around you as you seek to share the good news of Jesus with others. The power of his resurrection you share in his sufferings. Suffering takes on a different meaning as a Christian. It actually has purpose, has intention. Becoming like him in his death. It's a picture of Baptism, being buried with him in likeness of his death, raised in newness of life, fighting the good fight, putting sin to death, saying no to the flesh, yes to the, to the newness of spirit, to the new creation. That so we have sanctification, and then we have verse 11, glorification. That by any means possible, I may taint, attain to the resurrection from the dead. So the race ends... With the return of Christ, giving us new bodies, being raised in true newness of life, being brought into complete fellowship with Him, where there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more pain, no more suffering, and that you are imaging God exactly as He's designed you to be. That's the goal, that's what we're after. Okay, so we have that. That's what we're pressing towards, but why? Why do we press on? What's our motive? So you've, let's say you've come to faith in Jesus. Now what? new person comes into the church, and they say, I'm a brand-new Christian. What do I do? A typical response from a lot of churches is, okay, well, let's plug you into a program. Let's put, plug you into some activities. You know, let's, let's, get you, let's get you somewhere in the mix, right? We've got a need in the nursery. Let's go put you in the nursery, We've got a need over here in the youth group. Let's let's put you in the youth group. Let's plug you into some sort of an activity, Bible study. Let's get you into this Bible study. Let's get you into this Sunday school. (coughs) Now, don't don't misunderstand me. These activities, these functions within the the church have their purpose. And many of them are necessary, and they are good. But the answer for the... For the new Christians isn't just let's get you busy doing something. What does it look like to grow in your relationship with Jesus? Paul gives a striking statement in verse eight. Look at this. He says. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of because of what? I count all of my activity, all of my religious works, I count it all as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Why would Paul why would Paul want to know someone he already knows? Why would Paul want to know someone he already knows? Surely he knows Jesus, right? Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, knocked him off his horse, blinded him, spoke to him. After scales fell from his eyes and he <coughs> and, and he believed in Jesus, he spent time in the wilderness, right? So he, he knows Jesus. Why does he want to, why does he say here that he wants to know Jesus? You see, this, this question unearths two false beliefs that we're tempted to, to buy into. One is the false belief that once we come to faith in Christ, once we've been justified, we have little need to know him more. Right? We're, we're ready to move on to something else. When in fact, Paul points to it and says, knowing Christ Jesus in your justification is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the starting pistol for your race everything that moves forward hinges and builds off of your growing in your knowledge and knowing who Jesus is in a relational sense. The second false belief is that once we come to faith in Christ, once we've been justified, knowing Jesus means packing our heads with Bible verses and theological truths. That what we need is systematic theology. That what we need is Doctrinal statements that we need to memorize and and um, and etch into our brains that we need to memorize full sections of uh, of the Bible. And the more we do that, the more we grow in our relationship with the Lord. Now, hear me on this because I don't I don't want to I don't want to be misunderstood. Truths about someone are important. Truths about someone are important. Truths about God and about Jesus. About what's contained in Scripture are vital. They're important. It, it, this is true in any relationship. It, it's important for me to know when my wife's birthday is. It's important for me to know when our anniversary is. It's important for me to know that my wife is blonde-headed, has green eyes, and is about yay tall. If I get these things wrong in trying to trying to build a relationship with her, I'm in. I, I I'm in. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble water. I'm on thin ice. Right? I'd I better know these things about my wife. Otherwise, our relationship is, is headed for disaster. I better know, especially, <coughs> there are key things that I need to know about my wife in certain times. And it's important that I know my wife is allergic to penicillin. Because if she goes to the doctor and she's rushed into the emergency room, and she's unconscious, and the doctors start asking me questions. <laughs> Excuse me. And they say, w- is she allergic? We-, we-, we need to give her penicillin. Is she allergic to it? If I don't know, and I say yes, we've got a major problem. You know? That my ignorance there has, could possibly have just cost her life. So facts about people are important. Facts about God are important as we relate to him. But they are an integral part of that relationship. They are not separate from it. I've used this this illustration before. I think it's helpful. You can know all the facts that you want about Abraham Lincoln. You may know every written detail that, that is out there, and you may have committed it to memory. You can get up here and tell us all kinds of stuff about Abraham Lincoln. But you do not have a personal relationship with Abraham Lincoln. It's very different to know facts about someone versus having a personal relationship with them. So facts are an integral part of our relationship with the Lord. Not separate from it. So back to our back to our original question: Why would Paul want to know someone he already knows? Why does Paul want to know Jesus and count that as the greatest, supremest, highest value when he already knows Jesus? I think the answer to that is in verse twelve. It's it's summarized in verses eight and nine. It's. Paul brings it out in in 12. it's, It's because grace became infinitely more valuable to Paul than his own efforts. Knowing Christ became Paul's daily and ultimate purpose in life rather than faultlessly observing the law. That's what he was previously aiming at. And now it's grace. Now it's grace. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it. What is he talking about? Already obtained it. This this maturity, this maturity and growing in Christ's likeness reaching glorification. Not that I've already obtained it or am already perfect. That word is also translated mature. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you hear that? The Sovereign call of God upon Paul's life motivated Paul to know Jesus more. Paul, why do you press on in wanting to know Jesus more and more and more? He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you remember back in Acts 9, Ananias is sitting there and the Lord comes to Ananias. This is right after he's blinded Paul. He comes to Ananias, and he says in chapter 9, verse 15, well, he says to Ananias, let me back up. He says to Ananias, I want you to go, and I want you to I want you to go, and I'm going to tell you where to go. You can go to the street, street called Straight, and there's going to be a man there named Saul, and here's what I want you to do. And Ananias goes, he knows about Saul, he says, um, Lord, this guy kills Christians. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a follower of the way. <laughs> says, are you sure this is? are you sure you, this is what you want to do? And in verse 15 God says, go for he, Saul, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You see, Paul thought he was doing the Lord's work when he, before, (coughs) he thought he was doing the Lord's work before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. See, he he had the pedigree right he was a a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the zeal right he says as of as of zeal, a persecutor of the church he had he had the moral cleanness, as for righteousness under the law, found blameless. Paul, Paul thought he was doing the Lord's work there. He, he wanted to honor God. That's what he wanted. And Christ met him on that road and gave him a taste of pure grace. Paul, you, th- you think you are honoring God in what you are doing. Let me show you grace. Let me show you what true honoring God is. <laughs> Christ gave him a taste of pure grace, and it wet his appetite for more. And he said, I, "I've got to know more of this God-Man, Jesus. So much that he would go undergo humble suffering in order to know Jesus more. To undergo humble suffering in order to know Jesus more. Do you remember back previously? Back up in Acts, Acts chapter five, the disciples had been thrown in prison and they were beaten and tortured and, and they were released. And Luke writes that the disciples rejoiced at having been considered worthy to suffer for Jesus. Paul valued his relationship with Jesus, knowing him so much, he was willing to undergo suffering for that. The disciples were willing to undergo suffering because of the value they placed on knowing Jesus. So how does this influence our relationship with the Lord? The value that we place on someone is revealed by what we're willing to do to be with that person. Let me give you two examples. One, if, think of someone that you really respect, someone that you that you that you really look up to. You really respect. You really value them. Maybe a maybe a college professor. Maybe maybe a neighbor. Maybe a friend. A parent. Some somebody that you really respect. In, in that person, you desire to spend more and more time with them. And when I was in college, there was a, a young man. Uh, I, I was in. Was in Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now Crew, and while I was there, there was a young man that I really, I really look up, looked up to. Um, I was still f- fairly young in my faith and um, was was trying to figure out what it meant to follow and walk after Jesus. And you know, in a secular college, and um, I, I I saw this young man the way he he lived his life. He was a few years older than me, and uh, I, I went up to him one one day and I said, Look, I said I. Would you disciple me? Would you? Would you disciple me? I'm willing to meet with you. I, va- I valued what I saw in him. And he said, Yeah, 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 sure. Let's uh, let's get together for lunch next week. And I was like, Okay, yeah, that'll be great. I was all excited. Of course, I was reading a lot, and, and and so I expected him to bring a book, and we were gonna go through this big book, systematic theology, or you know something. I was like, He's gonna pack my head with more knowledge, because I was in school, and that's what the teachers were doing. You know, professors were fitting more knowledge about topics and subjects into our heads. So that's just what I naturally expected. But I, I was somewhat humbled and initially disappointed when we sat down and he started just telling me what, what the Lord was showing him in his life and in the scriptures and what impact that was having and, uh, on, on him and the way he walked. And eventually I, I realized that what he was doing was discipling me. He was showing me what the Lord was showing him in Scripture and then how that was applying to his life and how he was walking in faith in light of what the Lord was showing him. You see, oftentimes we think that discipleship means filling someone else's head with uh, as much truth as we can. Discipleship contains truth. True discipleship happens when what the Lord is fashioning in you as you walk in faith begins to overflow into the lives of others. That you share your walk with the Lord with others. And they begin to grow too. Because they want to know this same God that you value more and more. So, summary real, so far. Why do we press on? Because God's rich, infinite, and gracious love for us in Jesus motivates us to know Him more. And when we do so, we value what He values. And we, when we begin to do that, it affects how we live, it affects how we interact with other people, it affects how we interact with stuff. we press on because of the value we place in Jesus. Now, we could leave it there, but I think it's important to note one one other aspect. Because remember, as I said at the beginning, this God that we have a relationship with is very much unlike us. We may image him, but he is holy. He is other than us. Our relationship with, with God is is unlike my relationship with my wife, specifically in that I'm dependent upon God to do the change that I see that I need. I'm not dependent upon my wife to make the change happen in me. In that relationship with my wife, we're two sinners that are brought together under a covenant of grace, linking arms and walking towards Jesus together. My relationship with Christ—I'm dependent upon Him to grow me. So, how does that? has that work? What's that? The mixture of God's sovereign work to fashion us like Christ and our efforts—that's the—that's the the dynamic of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, which. If you're new to the subject, it's you know it, it's been debated in 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 the uh, the history of the church for centuries. So I'm not going to try and unravel that in its entirety for sure. But it's important for us to recognize that in our relationship with the Lord, we're dependent upon Him to affect the change in us, and yet that change is contingent upon our obedience. And we can see that here in chapter three, verse twelve, and then. Chapter two, verse twelve and thirteen. Let's look at these briefly, and then I'll I'll give an illustration to uh, that that'll hopefully be helpful. <clears throat> two twelve says, excuse me, three twelve. Not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. The sovereign call of, uh, uh of of the uh, the sovereign call of God on your life through the gospel. That's what Paul says. That's what draws him more towards Jesus, is that Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now look back in, uh, in verse 12 in chapter two. These are parallel texts. Paul says, um, make sure I'm in the, in the right spot. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, there's your obedience, there's your effort, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work, excuse me, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do you see that mixture there? We're called to work out our salvation, called to obey. Why? Because it is God who's at work in you. It is God who is at work in you. Matt Chandler phrases this well. He says, Paul pre- Paul presses on, his pressing on, which is present tense. Paul presses on, present tense, because Christ has made him his own, past tense. The imperative of obedience is grounded in the indicative of the, of the gospel. Let me say that again. Quote from Matt Chandler. Paul presses on present tense because Christ has made him his own past tense. The imperative of the, of obedience is grounded in the indicative of the gospel. Let me give you an illustration. Oftentimes we think of God's sovereign work and our efforts as mutually exclusive. Sort of like a a, a, a suspension mixture. If you remember Remember chemistry class, maybe back in high school, or, um, uh, or 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 even you can you you see this you see suspension mixtures all the time, like sand and water, for instance. Take sand and you mix it in water and you stir it up. What happens? The sand and the water go swirling around in the in the glass, but you can still identify the the sand and the water. You you can you, you can almost you can separate the particles, basically. Um, they, they swirl around uh, and, and and you can still identify them and and we think of our uh, of Gods sovereignty and our our works our uh, our responsibility almost in this sense that you can stir them up and see them sort of whirling around in the void of time but they're distinct and they're separate you can you can pick them out and that and that's that's not that's not the case. In reality, they're more like a solution. They're more like a solution where our efforts are the solutes. They're dissolved in the solvent of God's divine and effective will, like salt into water. You take like you take water, and when you dissolve salt in it, what what happens to the salt? the chemical makeup of it changes. Salt, which is sodium chloride in ACL, breaks up and, and just literally changes its, its form and combines with the water. <clears throat> it dissolves into the water. And this is, this is the way Paul saw his efforts and God's divine holy will. God's sovereignty, That is, as, the, as his efforts, as he grew in his relationship with the Lord and knowing Christ and began to value what Christ valued and following Jesus and his obedience and his, his efforts begin to fall in line with what God desired, what honored God, his efforts were dissolved into God's work. And that's the way it is with us, is that when, when our relationship with the Lord grows, we, we, our, our efforts are dissolved into his will. And you can't really tell where one begins and the other ends. And this gives our life a completely different flavor. You see, as we seek to know Jesus, he peels back the layers of our life to show us where we need change. We need change with relationship with others. We have idols that we, that we need to get rid of. We have heart areas of the old self that are still lingering that we need to put to death, trust him, in the newness of life that he gives us in those areas. Trust that those are good. God shows us these areas that we need change and then he calls us to trust him in valuing what he values. And your doing so becomes dissolved in the solutions of God's holy and good will and you begin to start seeing him sovereignly carry out his plan and his purpose in your life. It's the challenge of trusting God in the midst of broken relationships. How many of you are experiencing broken relationships right now? Broken relationships with, with friends? Broken relationships with family? And you don't know what to do. If you seek the Lord and ask him, Lord, is there, is there any wicked way in me? Is there anything in my, my life that has caused this rift in this relationship? And if the Lord reveals something to you, and you go to that person and and you humbly ask for forgiveness that's not easy. that's not easy that's trusting that's trusting in the Lord to do something you cannot do yourself but if he, if he, if he doesn't show anything and you, and you, 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 you can honestly feel that you know that you, you've, you've not sinned against this person, have boldness to go to them. To ask them, maybe you need to ask them why 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 this gap between us? why this separation? to give encouragement to let this person know despite whatever's going on, I still love you. And if there's a wrong this person is, has committed against you to, to forgive them as Christ has forgiven you, and trust that the Lord, is working in their life to conform them to the image of Jesus. And he's doing that in his own time. Your timeline for sanctification and growing in Christ's likeness is not the same timeline as anybody else's. And you can't force your timeline on someone else. And so in the midst of relationships, you've got to trust the Lord to grow someone in, there in his time but be willing to be the conduit of His grace to other people. So bringing it it back to our motive, and let me ask you this, what are you pressing towards right now? What are you aiming at? Is it retirement? Is that the main goal in your life? Is it maybe just getting the kids out of high school? I mean, just getting the kids married to somebody who's Who's a Christian? Maybe it's that vacation you got coming up. That's 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 what you're really aiming at. Promotion at work. Maybe it's just the weekend. Maybe it's just next weekend. What are you pressing towards right now? What's What's the overarching race that you're running in your life? Are you seeking to lay hold of Jesus, to know him? Paul not only gives us a motive for why we press on, but he tells us how, gives us our means. Look at verse 12 and 13. He says, Not that I have already obtained it. Not that I've already obtained it. Paul had a holy dissatisfaction with his old self. He looked at himself. And this is the Apostle Paul, remember? This is Paul. I know. He and, and he says, not that I've already obtained it. He had a holy dissatisfaction with an, with his old self. Let me encourage you to develop a holy dissatisfaction with yourself. Now there's a, a lot of buzz in the church culture now that wants to do away with you know, any, any sort of Squashing of self-esteem, right? We don't we don't need people to have lower self-esteem, right now. The depression is on the rise. People are having a hard enough time as it is. Dealing with the, with the downness of of the self, right? we, what we need is to lift people up, positive encouragement. Let me let me say this. There is a difference between a personal dissatisfaction and a holy dissatisfaction. And I would venture to say that what most of us experience in the, in the way of self-dissatisfaction is a personal dissatisfaction. And that ho- a holy dissatisfaction is rare, is very rare. Let me, give, let me give you an illustration. Let's say you go to work on Friday You go to work and you walk into the office and you thought it was casual Friday and come to find out it was not. And so here you are walking in, pajamas on, you know, whatever, you look like you just, you know, walked in out of bed and everybody else is dressed in the appropriate attire. And you're not. And what's worse is corporate decides they're going to make a pop-in visit today and they're there. Oh, no. Things couldn't get worse, right? But not only that, you're sitting at your desk working on this project that you've been, that you, that you've been just pouring yourself into. I mean, this is where you really want to shine with your boss, right? That, that, that performance-based relationship that you, that you lean on, this is really where you're hoping that this is going to get you some, some points. And you're, you're <clears throat> your boss steps in, and he says, Hey, uh, so-and-so in upper management, they're here, and they want to just hear what you've got so far. And you're you're all excited. So you go in there and you you know, you lay things out and you start giving your presentation on you know, on this project, and all of a sudden you see that this that their faces turn from intrigue to horror and you suddenly realize you have made a tragic error in in what you are presenting. <laughs> but the problem is you can't stop. You ever had that you ever had that experience? You start talking in a conversation and you realize that what you're saying is now detrimental but you just can't you you can't stop the words just keep coming out (laughs) you ever had that happen to you and that's what's going on and so you know finally you just bumble through the rest of it and you can't save you do what you can to just save face and hope that you're not going to get fired and as you walk out of that that office they, they don't say anything and you're going oh oh my word this is this is terrible this is, this is a horrible, no good, very bad day. And that by now it's lunchtime and so you, you go get in your car and you're thinking about that presentation and you back up and crash. You smash into the taillight of somebody coming into the parking lot. Well, it's just the worst day in the world for you. And so after lunch, you come back and you sit down at your desk and you finish out the afternoon in hopes that no one else will speak to you. And as you're leaving the office... You see a coworker and you say say bye Jim, have a good evening. Only to realize that that's not Jim, that's Sam. Yes, you just called him by the wrong name. Now what's happened here? In your horrible, terrible, very bad no good day. What's happened? What's been offended here? Your pride. You're, 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 the things that you have identified yourself with in your work has has been, has been offended. That, that's your pride. You're, you're, it's a self-dissatisfaction. You're, you get home and you're like, man, I just blew it today. That's your pride that's been offended. That's very different from a holy dissatisfaction that says, like David says in the Psalms, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned? Have I have I done what is unrighteous in your in your eyes? So which one do you typically experience? Is it is it the personal dissatisfaction? I says, man, I just I really blew it. i I embarrassed myself today, or just couldn't get my act together, I feel bad about how you looked or appeared to other people? Or is it that what really bothers you, or really stirs you, really troubles you, is, your, is whether or not you are representing God well to other people. That you're working out that salvation, that you're being light in the midst of darkness. develop a holy dissatisfaction with yourself the more you know jesus the more you'll realize how very much unlike him you are but also how much you really want to be like him in 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 developing this and growing in that way let me challenge some of you some of you younger folks Let me challenge you not to just follow the commands in Scripture, but to ask why God requires them. Now, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says, let your speech be with grace as though seasoned with salt. When you read in Scripture about the words that come out of your mouth, don't just say, okay, well, I'm not supposed to cuss, or I'm not supposed to say these words, or I'm not supposed to say those words, or I should say yes, and please, and thank you, and yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, not to just simply follow the command, but ask the deeper relational question, why does God care what comes out of my mouth? And what does that reveal about him and how he's made me as his image bearer? So how do we press on towards Christ? One, develop a holy dissatisfaction with yourself. Two, two, don't dwell on past sins. Paul in verse 13 says, uh, says, he says, not looking back. Is that right? Sorry, I lost my place. Um, hang with me. Yes, he says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind, not dwelling on past sins. Remember Paul had a dark past. Paul had a lot that could that could weigh him down in in his old self. I mean Paul killed Christians. Paul Paul killed Christians. I don't I don't know everybody's story in here but I would venture to bet nobody in here has that in the resume of uh, of their history that they killed Christians. And yet, in the midst of that, Paul says, I forget what lies behind. I forget what lies behind. Past failures, past sins, past areas where I've spurned God's name, I've slandered it, where I can look back and say, God's worthy of punishing me right because of that. He remembers Christ. He remembers that the righteousness that he claims is not because of his good deeds or his lack of good deeds in specific times, but because of Christ and Christ's finished work. Folks, when your past sins creep up on you, preach the gospel to yourself. Paul did. So are you hanging on to past sins? Are there any past sins that are keeping you from pressing on? Let me tell you, Christ has paid for those. As the song says, they were nailed to the cross and you bear them no more. Don't dwell on past sins. Number three, hunger for the power of God in your life. Hunger for the power of God in your life. This from verse 10. Paul presses on that I may know him and the power of his resurrection power of his resurrection. You know, it's it's no, it's no coincidence that right after Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Remember that back in in chapter two? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's the power of God working in you, mixing with the solute of your efforts to make you like Jesus. It means the old self. means you kind of dissolve in God's plan. God shines forth your new creation. It's no It's no coincidence that right after that, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Why? Why does he say that? Because complaining is rebellion against being conformed to the sufferings of Jesus. And it's the sufferings of Jesus that make us like him. Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans eight, sixteen and eighteen, he says, And the spirit of him who and the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I'm I'm sorry I've uh, I've, I've gotten ahead of myself. <laughs> I seem to have mixed the hungering for God's power with embracing suffering, so I, I apologize for that. Um, let me let me back up. Hunger for the power of God in your life. It's the gospel that is the power of God to affect heart change in your life. Romans eight eleven, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through his spirit who dwells in you. Ephesians 1 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. And Paul gives this list of things that he desires for the Ephesians, and the last of which is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Do you see the power of God in your life affecting change? Where Where is God pressing the gospel into your life to effect change? Hunger for the power of God in your life. Because as you get to know Jesus more, you grow in that relationship with him. You value what he values, and you you trust him in decisions throughout your day. You start to see the power of God coming to bear in your life. And it, it grows you in it. Causes you to thirst more for Christ. Because you're seeing that this gospel is actually true. That this God who, who says he is throughout scripture actually is. So that's number three. Hunger for the power of God in your life. Now we're to, now we're to embrace suffering. Number four, embrace sufferings as a means of holy refinement. Embrace sufferings as a means of holy refinement. It's, it's no, and I'll, I won't read this back again, but it's, it, I'll just restate it to kind of put it back where it needs to go. Um, it's no coincidence that Paul gives the command to not complain after he's just highlighted the sovereign work of God to, uh, the, sovereign, the sovereign solution of God mixing with the solute of our efforts. It's no coincidence that he says that because complaining is rebellion against being conformed to the sufferings of Jesus. Now, Romans 8, 16, and 18 in its its place. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us in Jesus. Matthew 5:10 and 12 Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The the finish line is theirs. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Martin Luther said it well when he said they gave our master a crown of thorns. Why should we hope for a crown of roses? of you going through the valley right now going through sufferings sufferings that maybe would be perhaps you would you're tempted to think they would be easier, lighter if you made decisions that were not in line with God's values those are temptations it's easy to fall into the lie that Satan spews out gave to Adam and Eve, still given to us in our sufferings. God holds out a better prize. The sufferings are refiner's fire to grow us in Christ-likeness. So if you're going through the valley right now, if you are, are you looking to God to use this time to make you more like Jesus? I'll tell you, I've had several instances where an an older man who I respect would would come up to me, not necessarily the same the same gentleman, but you know, different different ones would come up to me and put his hand on my shoulder after a, a after something happened, would say, "Austin, son, let's go have a chat." Oh, I've hated that. I've hated those words because I know I'm getting ready to get raked over the coals. I, I know I'm getting ready to to experience. Some endurance, right there. But I know that it's good. It's going to be humbling. It's going to be hard. Whatever he's got to say. But it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Can you look? Can you can you see God's bringing you through the fires of affliction, through the fires of suffering? Can you say, oh, I, know, I know this is going to be hard. I know this is going to be hard." I would, in myself. Would want it another way. But Lord, let your will be done. If 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 this will make me more like Jesus, then bring me through it. Bring me through the storm. Embrace sufferings as a means of holy refinement. And then lastly, develop good disciplines. And this is this isn't overtly in this text, although I think that it is. You you could certainly make the biblical argument for it, but the overarching theme of the facts and the and the regularity of of certain behaviors that conditions our relationships is present. I think in all of what Paul says, and so I save this to last because the the the, the because I hope it's clear that. Good spiritual disciplines are not a means of procuring god's love for us, but we do them because He loves us. So let me give you a couple of these. one are there areas in which you're weak in areas that you're weak in maybe you're maybe you're not a good study, maybe you struggle with just regular. Good time in the Word. Maybe you're going through a dry season, where you're just like, you know, I'm in mean the Word, but it's just not, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not thriving, and you know, I'm just struggling. Maybe, you, maybe you struggle with prayer. Maybe you struggle with, uh, you, you know, with, with, with hospitality. Maybe you struggle with serving. Well you know, are you where are you where are you weak in some of these areas? Let me encourage you. Areas where you're weak, others are strong. Spend time with other Christians who are strong in areas that you're not. I, I, love, I love Nathan. I love Nathan and the fact that Nathan is in, our, is in our missional community because Nathan is gifted in hospitality. When we have a meal together and, and all the food is spread out and, and we pray and everyone gets ready to come through. Nathan makes a beeline over to where the drinks are and he picks up the cups and he, he starts filling them with ice and setting them out and as people come down through the line, he says, what can I get you to drink? What can I get you to drink? Nobody asks him to do that. He just goes and he, and he does it. But, but what, what I love about Nathan even more than that is not only is, he, not only is he gifted in that area, but he will shift right into relationships. Now, somebody's new there that, that that that's new to the group, is visiting and Nathan. will make a point to go and sit down and 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 talk with them and and really be interested in what they're saying. I've watched him. Let me tell you, I struggle with hospitality. I love having people over to the house and hanging out, but I'm I'm very much like Martha. Uh, in, in, in this because I want to do, 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 do. I want to make sure that, you know, the food tastes good. I want to make sure that, you know, the, the lights are right and, you know, everybody's got a place to sit. I want to make sure that everybody has a good experience. But I struggle to just stop and talk to people, to, to interact with their heart. I struggle with that. I struggle with that. So I, I love when Nathan's there because he gives me encouragement. He gives me encouragement in that. When we have somebody new come over to the house, you know, a new neighbor, I'm calling Nathan. I'm saying, Nathan, come help me with hospitality, because, <laughs> because I need that. I need that. I'm so thankful for him as a brother. I'm thankful for Mark, for Mark Kelly. Sit down with Mark, and when we've had men's time, no, and and Mark just starts talking about the people he shared Jesus with, and I struggle with evangelism. I struggle to break the ice and get into a spiritual conversation with people. I, it, it's just, it's an area that I'm weak in, but I'm so encouraged to hear, to hear Mark and to hear how he's talked with people about Jesus. I need that encouragement. I need that strengthening. I love hearing Tracy, I love hearing Tracy sing. It's like a spiritual pep talk. So encouraging, just to hear and watch her sing, as she pours her heart out. Where are you weak? Because I, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. If you if you've ever stood next to me while I'm singing, <laughs> um, it's it's so encouraging. It's so encouraging to have a, a body that's gifted in these areas. Where are you weak? Spend time with other Christians, other folks in the body, that are strong in areas that you're weak, and. And, and and by the way, I'm not jealous of any of these folks. I'm not, I'm not jealous of them. There's the, there's the temptation to be jealous of people that are gifted in areas that we're not. But when the same grace that covers them and makes them righteous before God covers mean, it's not based off of their works, it's freeing. It's freeing. Because I'm not competing with them. I could be encouraged by the display of God's grace and His, his gifting and the new creation He's building in them, and I can be strengthened in that. It's the body growing together. So spend time with Christians who are not who are strong in areas that you're not. And then lastly, remember the, the picture of the runner running the race, pressing on. Lay aside things that hinder you. The imagery Paul gives here is parallel, very similar to what what the writer of Hebrews opens up in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, everything that hinders us, and run with endurance the race that is before us. Good runners, runners that are serious about running, they shed anything that would hinder them, that would cause them to slow down, to stumble, to trip. They wear light clothing, they wear short shorts, at least back in the day in high school, that's what was on the uniform. But you have light, very, very light feather, light shoes. Many runners would even shave the hair on their arms and their legs. Nothing to hinder you. Is your life pattern in such a way that you're looking to shed anything that's going to hinder you from growing in your relationship with Christ? Do you have any hindrances in your faith right now? Anything that's weighing you down? Anything you need to shed and get rid of in order to grow closer to Jesus? How are you running? <clears throat> so we looked at the motive. We've looked at the mean. So let me, I'm going to end with, going to end with, a spin on the question I started with. I started with the question, "What does it mean to grow in your relationship with Jesus?" We're more of a, on, a, on a personal level. How's your relationship with Jesus right now? And we talked about how our tendency is to focus on our efforts. And I hope that as we close out, your your perspective on that has changed. So let me end with a spin on that same question. And I'm gonna say that question in a different way. What is God currently doing in your life to make you more like Jesus? What is God currently doing in your life to make you more like Jesus? And the second part of that question is this. How are you responding to it? How are you responding to it? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the gospel that washes over us, that clothes us in a righteousness that is not our own, cleanses us from the stain of sin, ushers us into your presence, pulls back the veil We can see how beautiful, how precious, how glorious you are. We can truly value you. We can know you. Pray, Father, that your effective calling on the lives of your children would stir us to more and more faithful obedience. Not that we would glorify ourselves, but that we would seek to glorify and honor you. Many of us are hurting right now, Father. Experiencing broken relationships, asking why. May you do your sovereign work, Father, to unearth things in our heart first. May we examine ourselves and see if there's any wicked way in us anywhere that we need repentance, we need to seek forgiveness. Give us boldness to reconcile with those we need to be reconciled with. Father, in the same same vein, give us a boldness to speak grace and to speak gospel to others. To tell others how much we love them because you loved us first. Do your work in our lives, Father. May we press on to lay hold of Christ because he has laid hold of us. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen.